Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. John Swinton, all the way from the United Kingdom. Welcome, Dr. Swinton. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, For those who uh, are not familiar with you, uh, can you give them just a little bit of background? Yeah, well, I'm in the... I was going to say sunny Scotland, but actually it's a very rainy Scotland just now. So I'm Professor of Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, My background is in mental health nursing, and I nursed for many years, uh, and I worked in chaplaincy for a little while. I'm an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church of Scotland, but I now work full-time as a professor at the university. And my particular area of interest is in the theology of disability. Awesome. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Um, What is the theology of disability? The theology of disability really is asking questions about where God is in the midst of human disability and asking what does it mean to be a human being, to have a severe disability, for example, uh, but to be beautiful just the way you are. And it asks these kind of questions of the tradition because the Christian tradition tends to assume that there is a single way to be normal. Um, uh, But the theology of disability says, no, there's actually a number of different ways. And if we look at different forms of disability, we come to understand human beings in different ways. And when we understand one another differently, we can find all sorts of interesting things to uh, to challenges and to help us to create communities where we can really love one another. Awesome. So what, uh, when we're, when we're talking about that and you mentioned the Christian tradition only sees kind of one way as normal, what would that one, one way of be? Well, everybody should look like me. (laughs) It's basically the way we we oftentimes think. So we kind of have an idea that everybody should, uh, have two legs, should be able to have certain levels of sight, should be the same colour or the same height or whatever. 
And so we kind of have this idea of normality that uh, that shapes our cultural thinking and our personal thinking. Whereas in reality, when you look around, who is it that would you would say represents normality? Because all of us are, are very, very different in different ways. And so it's quite interesting to ask, why is it that we choose that some things are considered to be normal and some things are considered to be abnormal? Because that's not the way that we really live our lives. But sometimes for lots of different reasons, we choose to single out people and say, you're disabled, you're different, you're abnormal. And when that happens, all sorts of unfortunate and unpleasant things can happen to that person that we choose to consider to be abnormal. Mm-hmm. How does... What, what were you saying? I'm sorry. Be, being normal is flexible. We, we kind of make it up as we go along. And uh, because as Christians, the only real model of normality that we have is Jesus. You know, Paul, Apostle Paul described Jesus as the image of God. So when we look to Jesus, we can see normality. But, you know, beyond that, everything else is just what human beings decide to make up as, as normal and abnormal. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I think that's helpful. What? How does that affect our soteriology? When we think about the uh, the theology of disability, uh, because we have, you know, the 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 ways in which pe- people come to Christ, it's it's difficult to kind of flesh that out when you're dealing with people who are disabled, uh, have mental um, issues. That it's it's hard to navigate that space. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, you know, in uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks about the resurrection body, but he talks about it in a very interesting way. He doesn't s- talk about the, the resurrection body as, as replacing the bodies that we have. He says our bodies are transformed. And there's something very interesting about that, because there's something about all of our bodies that seems to have some kind of eternal significance in, in the sense that, you know, it's not going to be replaced by something it's completely different. It's actually going to be transformed into something. And you see the same thing in the book of Revelation where uh, the new Jerusalem comes down upon the old Jerusalem. So you've got that same idea of being transformed. And so I think heaven will be full of surprises in the sense that, you know, we, we might think, well, when you get to heaven, uh, you'll, you'll, you'll look like this, or you'll look like that, and you won't have this, or you won't have that. But actually, you know, when you think about what Paul's saying, he says, well, who knows what heaven will be like? I have a, a I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story that I'll, that I'll illustrate what I mean. Uh, we have a, a pastoral care course. Well, we used to have, it doesn't run now. But it used to be from about distance learning. So you would sit in a, a classroom in Aberdeen, and you would have people on the telephone, and you have people in the room, and you have people coming through video. So, you know, you can imagine trying to teach that. It's a very interesting experience. But one of the, one of the classes that we, we had, and I remember it very, very well. In the room, there was uh, a woman who was completely without sight. There was another woman who was completely without hearing. And she had a, a hearing dog, which, you know, alerted her when her telephone rang, uh, or when her doorbell rang, so she knew what was going on. And she also had an interpreter. And we uh, uh, we went round the room at one point and talked about how we understood uh, spirituality and spiritual experiences, and everybody shared something. And at one point in the class, in, in the class, the woman who didn't have any hearing, through her interpreter, told the story of how she had this dream, where she went to heaven, and she said, 
I, I met Jesus. And then she said, his saying was amazing. Now, in other words, her vision of what heaven was, was not that she could hear, but that everybody could communicate in the same way that she does. Like, now, mm. mo most of what we think about heaven, we, we imagine, don't we? And we imagine it from what we think we know just now. So it seems obvious to you and I that when we get to heaven, we'll, we'll, we'll hear things. But for her, because her bodily life had been different, that wasn't the image of heaven she had. So I just think heaven is going to be a really interesting and surprising place. So I think disability challenges our soteriology and enables us to see that sometimes when we're imagining heaven, we imagine it through the eyes of what we can already see and know. And of course, everything about heaven will be surprising in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about, and in, in, uh, kind of to further think through the point of soteriology, you know, the confession made, um, understanding the gospel and for a lot of people, I know a friend of mine has a, a practice where he works, him and his wife work with children with autism. Oh, yes. And um, he was like, you know, th these these children to try to to articulate the gospel. He and he works with adults as well. Um, they work with adults as well. Um, you can't explain the gospel to them and they can't. Ex they're not able to show that they understand it or even give a confession of faith. Um, have you wrestled with that, with the, uh, the, um, the theology of disability? Sure. I mean, I think that's a very good question. But I, I'm always struck by Paul's description of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit uh, speaks in groans that no one can understand. Uh, so there's something about the articulation of the faith that, that really we can't comprehend with our minds. Um, but in the power of the Spirit, we can do, you know, things can happen. Like So in that situation, I believe that God is, is, is uh, good and just. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is mysterious. And that uh, I think when people are part of a worshipping community, maybe they can't understand the words, but they can understand the worship. They can understand the experiences of relationships and they can open up spaces, the community can open up spaces where the Holy Spirit can do their work. So the fact that somebody doesn't, isn't able to articulate things in the way that you and I might be, not be able to doesn't mean that they don't have any kind of relationship with God because in the power of the Spirit, that's what the Spirit does. So I guess for those of us who surround that person, the key is always to, to give people the benefit of the doubt and to, to trust God who is good and just is with this individual. And as you participate in your community, so people feel things and touchfully experience things. And so the body of Christ becomes a reality because it's in the body of Christ that people who don't cognate in that way feel and sense and touch and experience Jesus. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think that's really good for us to rely on the Holy Spirit as you're saying, um, because when you take, when you make statements, sometimes you don't consider those who are, when we make statements at, at in reference to soteriology, we don't consider those who are disabled. Um, and it, it causes us to have a more nuanced approach and yes. how we think through things. Um, why has this, this study, and I know you spent a lot of time on the theology of disability, why is it so important to you? Or why, what motivated you to, to do work in this area? 
that's a good question. I mean, it's important. What motivated me initially, I think, was because people who are considered to be different and disabled tend to be treated very badly by society. So people will be oppressed and excluded, they'll be financially disadvantaged. Uh, and you could really say that the certain um, people who experience certain forms of disability are very much the poor within our society. Because So I was kind of drawn into the field because you know, Jesus constantly pushes us to recognize the poor and the outsider as, as something that we look to. But then as I got into it, I began to see that actually what's at stake is the nature of what you think it means to be a human being. Because one of the things that's really interesting that when you think about the body of Christ is it's the diversity within the body of Christ that makes the, the body the body. You know, Paul says very clearly, you know, the head can't be the toe, toe can't be the arm, and so on and so forth. It's each part within that body uh, that is necessary for the body of Christ to be whole and the body of Christ to be faithful. And so as I began to think about disability as a, a form of human difference, I began to see that actually it's really, really important that the body of Christ recognises that each member of the body is important. No matter what shape or form you are, no matter how articulate or inarticulate you are, you're necessary for the body to be the body. And so I was brought in uh, uh, through a focus on justice but realise that actually what I'm talking about is the nature of being the human being and what the Christian community should be like and sadly oftentimes isn't like. Because mm -hmm. um, we see Jesus often interacting with the disabled throughout scripture and I think that's you know even you saying that made me think about that and I remember um, uh, Dr. Howard John Wesley said one time in a sermon we have to see people with disabilities as people that happen to have a disability and not putting their disability in, in front of their personhood. And I thought that was really thought provoking because oftentimes when we see a person with dis dis a disability, if it's visible, we automatically kind of just focus in on that without realizing that is a person. That's right. That's absolutely right. And that's a great distinction. Yeah. I think that's, that's so helpful. Um, what have been some tools that you found helpful and resources um, as you've been working through um, the theology of disability? Well, I mean, there's, a, there, there's a lot of good books around it that begin to open up the, the conversation around uh, theology and disability. So there's a very interesting book by a woman called Nancy Eastland, which is called The Disabled God. And she looks at the whole idea of whether or not God is, um, uh, and it, whether or not it's, it's possible or legitimate to say that God, who's broken on the cross, actually experiences disability. There's another very good book by my friend and colleague called Hans Reinders, and it's called um, Receiving the Gift of Friendship. And it looks at profound intellectual disabilities and the way that divine and human friendships can help to create a kind of community within which people with all sorts of differences and disabilities can begin to um, uh, live together uh, and understand what that means to live together. So these would be two very interesting books that you know people should be have a look at. If they, if they want to begin to get into that, uh, then that, that they would certainly be places to go. But one of the biggest revelations for me in some senses in practical terms was how simple it is 
to create the type of community where uh, difference doesn't really matter. It's very simple, but at the same time, it's complicated. But the simplicity lies uh, in, in this. If you think through the way that um, Jesus' ministry ran, so who did he spend his time with? He spends his time with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. Not reformed tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes, but people who society, religious and civil society, although the two would be the same, rejected. There's something very important about that. Because one of the things that we learn from the incarnation is that God, who is completely unlike human beings, becomes a human being and offers human beings friendship. You know, in John's Gospel, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. That's amazing. <laughs> the God who, is, who creates the universe becomes a human being and offers us friendship. Um, and, and just changes the identity of the, the disciples. But it's that particular kind of friendship. It's not the kind of friendship that, that maybe our society normally assumes where two people with sheer likeness, uh, you know, come together as friends. So most of your friends, my friends, are probably people who uh, have, we've got something in common with, who are very similar to us, look the same, we go to the same places, we go to the same church and so on and so forth. That's not what you see in Jesus. Jesus seeks out and offers friendship to people who are different. And for me, that was, that was a very powerful uh, uh, turning point because the simplicity of friendship uh, is, is the gift that we can give to one another that can create the body of Christ in a way that is faithful and open. And it's, that, it's, it's beginning to think through how we can develop these kind of Christ-like friendships that are the essence of discipleship that I think is a simple thing, but it's also a very complicated thing. But once we see that, and once we listen to that as the heart of the gospel and the heart of discipleship, then things begin to change. Mm. I think that's so helpful um, for us as, as thinking through this. I know in addition, you do um, work uh, with patients with dementia. Um, how is that um, work and what motivated you to 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 focus on in on that as well? Well, yeah, the my work with dementia just comes from my work as a, a hospital chaplain and as a nurse, where I spent a lot of time with people who were living with with dementia, and I was always struck that you know sometimes you would go into a big ward, right, and you would, for me as a as a as a chaplain, I'd start to do the sacraments or I'd pray or something like that, and um, Almost in an instant, people who, for a lot of the time during the week, um, were kind of distant and vague, really locked into it. So you see the Lord's Prayer, and suddenly people lock into that. And once you watch that, you begin to see that actually dementia is not what people think it is. People think that dementia is where you, you, you kind of disappear, um, uh, and you're not the person that you used to be. But actually, that's not the case, because you're always the person that you are. And that, began, that made me begin to think, well, what does that mean for people to engage in that way? And what does it mean to, for somebody to say to somebody with dementia or about somebody with dementia, you're not the person you used to be? And then I began to think, well, that's because in our society, we assume that we are what we remember ourselves to be. Mm. Right? So you think that you are yourself because you can remember things about the past and bring them into the present and move on to the front. As if we create ourselves on our own. Mm. But then Paul, Paul says, 
yeah, that's exactly the way the world works. But you as disciples are who you are in Christ. Right? So you're not what you remember yourself to be. You're not what you think you are or not what you become through your professional life or whatever part of your life you think identifies who you are. You are who you are in Christ. That, that, that struck me as really important because when I was younger, I thought I was uh, quite a decent guy. Uh, I thought I was doing quite well in life. Then suddenly I become a Chris Christian and I discover I'm a miserable sinner. <laughs> Everything I, I created about myself turns out to be wrong because all I am is who I am in Christ. So it's not what I remember about myself that's important. It's, what, it's how God remembers me in Christ. And when you begin to think that way in relation to the people with dementia, it makes no difference. Well, it makes practical difference, of course it does, that somebody lost their memory, but they haven't lost themselves because God continues to remember them. Now, there's a lot of pain for those of us who remember them differently when people forget things and when people uh, go through the difficulties in dementia. But from, for a Christian, it's not what we remember that's important. It's who, who we're remembered by. And so that's, when I began to think that way, it begins to shift and change. And then secondly, when I, then when I began to think back on these people who would, you know, begin to do the Lord's Prayer or to share in the sacraments, I began to realise that actually your body remembers things. You know, in our culture we think, well, the only thing that you can remember is what goes on in your brain. But in reality, your body remembers things all the time. There's something, only something like 5% of what human beings do think about 95% of stuff just happens in your life or, but this is the, the key point for people with dementia in that situation over their lives these faithful people have uh, engaged with scripture engaged with sacrament they've prayed and now when they're they can no longer cognate in the way they used to do the body still remembers and when you watch their body moving in that way it's not like meaningless movements in the way that a, a reflex would be it's actually bodily remember spirituality and when you begin to realize that and you engage with people you can see that there's even in the midst of what seems to be really hopeless situations you get profound hope hmm. that's in, that's incredible and very enlightening i think for us as we're thinking through things um i want to go back uh, a little bit to where we started because i i forgot to ask you a question and i think it's important when we talk about uh the theology of disability what disabilities do you do you cover? What that that does that encompass? Yeah, well, the, the field of disability theology covers any any human ailment in some senses. So some people focus on um, illness. Some people focus on uh, uh, physical disability. You know, if perhaps you lose the power of your legs or the power of your arms or whatever it is. Some people focus on blindness and so on and so forth. My, my particular area is on, obviously, dementia, but also on mental illness or mental health challenges um, and also on profound intellectual disabilities. So people who don't have the ability to speak or to symbolise, but at the same time uh, have a desire to be, uh, to be Christians and to be a part of the, the Christian community. So these three areas are, are, are my area, but the actual field of theology of disability covers a whole range of uh, human experiences. Mm -hmm. um, when we talk, when you, when you mention mental health, I know in the African-American community, that's something that um, uh, many are trying to bring more awareness to uh, because yeah. it's kind of taboo. How have you seen um, 
have you seen your work in um, in mental illness help help others? What specific things do you think we can do to kind of bring awareness and also um, navigate that space? Because some people they kind of think mental illness, they think demonic activity in some in some extremes. Then you have those who kind of don't think mental illness is real at all. Um, and so there's so many bad thoughts about it that aren't helpful to the conversation. How, how can we navigate that? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I think the, the um, it's interesting. And in the, uh, you know, in the Genesis account of creation, you have that big picture where God creates the world. And then one of the things he asks Adam to do is to name the creatures. And so they all come up to him. So the, the rabbit becomes a rabbit and the giraffe becomes a giraffe or whatever it is. But the moment that Adam gives that animal a name, it becomes that thing. So a primal responsibility of human beings is to name things, but more than that, to name things properly. Sitting right at the heart of the issue that you're, you're highlighting, at the heart of mental health, mental illness, is, is stigma. The stigma is uh, when you uh, reduce a whole person to one part of them. And so say I, say I said to you, I don't know, not you, but anybody, uh, uh, say, you, say somebody had a big nose and all that people ever spoke about was this big nose. Eventually, they're reduced to the size of the nose because that's the way that people identify them. Oh, that's that person with the big nose and so on and so forth. That's what stigma does. It takes away your personhood and simply makes you that one thing. Mental health challenges. Uh, one of the main problems is stigma. The human beings name them in the wrong, name people in the wrong way. So you have a condition like some kind of psychotic illness or depression, and somebody names that as possession, even though there's like biological evidence to suggest it's all sorts of other things, or psychological evidence. But you, know, you give it that name, and the minute you give it that name, that's what it becomes. And whenever it becomes that, that's how you'll treat that person. So I think one of the things for the Christian community is to think through all of these things as to why and how, how and why you name th we name things in particular ways. So why would you call somebody a schizophrenic rather than call them David? You know, yeah. what's more important, David or the, the, the name? So I think at a very basic level, we need to think about why we use the language that we do in relation to mental health. Uh, and we also, I think we all have to be more educated about what that actually is. You know, what we put, when we're talking about people who have depression or bipolar disorder, what are we really talking about? Because very often we're talking about caricatures and, and we just make it up or we, or we look at the television screen and we, we say, well, that must be what it's like. But it's not, it's human experience. These are, these are people who go through tricky experiences but the, like you said earlier on, the people first. So if we begin to think about that, that these are just people with different experiences uh, whom we are called to love and to offer care to, then we can begin to name them properly. And I think that's the beginning point. Just get over that stigma, get over that misnaming and really do what Jesus would do. Yeah. I think that's uh, very insightful. Um, when we talk about mental illness and one of the questions we're, we're getting in, in relationship to mental illness is suicide and trying to navigate um, through that. And, and um, the first time I, I, I 
kind of thoughtfully thought through this was an article published um, in Ebony Magazine by uh, Dr. Otis Moss when he was talking about his sister who uh, who battled with schizophrenia her whole life. And then um, at a certain point, she she uh, committed suicide. And he talked about, you know, all the stigmas that came along with her committing suicide. People were, you know, kind of harsh in respect to understanding that. And he said, you know, just like cancer um, can cause death, schizophrenia can cause death in the form of suicide. And it's because it's a, it's, and that was the first time I thought about it in that way, which was helpful um, to understand it. Um, what are what are some of the ways we should be thinking through that? Would you, um, is that one of the ways you would advise people to think through uh, s- some um, instances of suicide? I think that you, you've almost answered the question yourself really there, because I think, you know, it would be very unusual for somebody to die of cancer and then for people to say, oh, it's all to do with, with sin or it's all to do with God won't love you. I mean, they wouldn't do that. But when it's something to do with your mind, then people say all sorts of different things. Now, the problem there is that it's cultural because we do live in a culture where we think that what goes on in our mind is more important than what goes on in another part of our body. And so we think that the essence of being a human being is to be able to think clearly, to think quickly, and to think uh, cleverly very often. Um, but of course it's not. The essence of being a human being is, is everything that we are in, in that sense. So, so culturally there's an emphasis on one dimension, but that's just a cultural thing. And I think as Christians we need to go past that because, you know, if you look at the, the Hebraic understanding of what a human being is, which presumably be the understanding that Jesus had, your body, mind and soul inextricably interconnected. You know, you're all one, you're ensouled beings in that sense. Um, and when we think about it in that, 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 that way, that slightly different way, then it destigmatizes it insofar as you realize perhaps that the reason why you're describing this as particularly difficult for you theologically or practically is because you think culturally that what was on your mind is more important than what was on your body. But that's just a perception. And once you break that down, I think it's, it's much easier. And I think, you know, the, the key thing for the Christian community in relation to suicide is how can you offer faithful support to those who are left behind? And that means not speculating about the afterlife, because you, don't know, you, you and I don't know what's, what, what, what that means, but recognising people's pain, recognising people's brokenness, recognising people's suffering. Uh, and sometimes we're not that good at doing that. But what I'm fascinated by, and more and more so in the context of, kind of the kind of sadness that we're, we're talking about, is the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about the book of Psalms as the prayer book of the Bible, right? So the, you know, it's, like, it's like a hymn book that God's given to us to enable us to worship. But there are more Psalms of lament in the prayer book of the Bible than any other kind of psalms. And yet, if your church is anything like my church, we don't really use the psalms in that way. We like to be happy. We like to be joyful. Um, but when it comes to sadness and brokenness, it's more complicated. But the psalms are really interesting because what they do, they enable us to cry out to God, sometimes in very violent ways, about the brokenness that we're experiencing, about the unfairness, about the, the way that the world is. But what you notice right in the middle of the Psalms, uh, not all of the Psalms, but the majority, 
sons of lament, as you get this big outburst of sadness and brokenness. But then the psalmist comes down to a point and says, okay, I trust in your unfailing love. I trust in you, I said. And then he goes on to worship. Nothing's changed, but he just sees things differently. And I think in the context of suicide or sadness or suffering, that pattern is what the church should be thinking about. Enabling people to speak honestly about the pain and the suffering they've gone through. Not pretending that it doesn't happen. We're not in we're not in the time of the, we're not resurrected people yet, so we still have suffering, we still sit in that space. But at the same time, helping people to, to get to that middle space where you can say, well, this is horrible, but I still trust in your unfailing love. That's the task. Not to speculate about uh, uh, things that we, we're not called to speculate about, but to develop strategies and types of community where we can really deal with suffering, hopefully because we have the resurrection, but recognising the suffering remains real. So helpful, so helpful. Um, I know you have uh, a, a few books out uh, I want to give you a chance to uh, kind of promote those uh, for our audience, because I think that um, this has been a rich time. And I know people listening will want to know more about you and your research and your work. Um, so I definitely want to give you a chance to highlight some um, some of the, the books you've written and also uh, where they could get those. Yeah, well, you can get them. You can get them anywhere and get them on Amazon. Amazon is the place for all, all knowledge. Yeah, I think there's probably three books that might be helpful in the light of this conversation. An older book that I wrote a few years ago called Raging with Compassion, uh, Pastoral Responses to the Problem of Evil. And it begins to look at how the Christian community is called to understand evil. But more than that, what kind of practices can we engage in, such as the practice of lament, that can overcome that, enable enable us to be a, a community of hope in the midst of community of darkness. The second book that people might find useful is um, my book on dementia. The subtitle is that Living in the Memories of God, which really tries to change the way that we think about dementia in a theological context and offer a hopeful narrative that can sustain people even through the, through the suffering and difficulties, but also to recognise that there's joy even in the midst of dementia. And then the third book that might be, people might find useful is uh, my most recent book, which is called Becoming Friends of Time. And it explores the way in which certain neurological conditions challenge the way we understand time. And so for you and I, time very often is clock time. And so we're constantly chasing the time. You know, you, you buy time, you use time, you waste time. Everything you do with your money, you do with your time. But when you look at scripture, you actually see a very different understanding of what time is. For God, time is a slow thing. You know, it's, it's taken us millions of years to get to where we are. God takes his time to do things. And so this book argues that when you look at uh, 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 acquired brain damage, pro uh, profound intellectual disability, and certain forms of dementia, you get a different understanding of time. And that different understanding is much closer to God's time than the way that we think time is uh, in the present. So these three books would be, I think, interesting and hopefully useful to people. Awesome. Well, how can people get in contact with you? Do you are you on social media, Twitter, Facebook? Um, is there a website? I'm in all of these things in different ways. Uh, or they can get get to me through uh, the University of Aberdeen's website. A any of these media, uh, you'll find me somewhere. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dr. Swinton. I really 
think this has been helpful. Um, you got me thinking about a, a few things and um, I'm excited uh, for people to hear our conversation. And um, thank you so much for taking your time to, to be with us today. No, thank you for the invitation. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching G3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jew3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jew3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.